Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is Jesse, and he'll be sharing his experience of problematic drug use and how Narcotics Anonymous helped him to recover. I'd like to welcome Jesse to the show. Hi, Jesse. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. So, Jesse, we usually start talking about family and growing up. So, what was family like for you? Um, growing up, the family for me was first of all, I was premature at birth. I had a very delayed pregnancy. Um, my mother was quite traumatized during my pregnancy giving a low chance of survival i remember when i was born from as early as i can remember um the world was terrifying for me i was always scared always felt quite lonely despite having you know two available parents there i came from a middle class family northeast melbourne from as young as i can remember though i was just very scared because i felt weak i was a lot smaller than the other kids being a premature baby and yeah fear fear played out a lot growing up so do you have any siblings uh yes i got an older sister she is three years older than me and a younger brother who's five years younger so i'm the middle child right okay so did they help you they're there for me um yeah i was quite close to my older sister growing up and yeah she was quite loving she was always around yeah i got along with my siblings quite well you know had arguments with my brother here and there but no more than, you know, it's quite, I think it's quite common for brothers to bicker and argue every now and then. Yeah. I think it is, yeah. So what about with your parents? This question's interesting because looking back, um, just to jog forward a bit, I went to rehab about 90-something days ago, 93 days ago, and I got asked, you know, how was my upbringing? How was the relationship with my parents? And I said, you know, it was fine. It was good. I came from a really good family, which in a way I did, yes, but I learned that it's how I felt growing up. And I felt quite loved for my mum, but my father wasn't really emotionally available. He was there physically for me, and I know he does love me, but he wasn't able to verbalise that. And looking back now, that did have an impact. I remember my parents said, they're always there, they're always around, they're always there if I needed something. But I remember crying a lot when I was younger and not always being able to find my parents or being willing to seek their help. I felt quite alone and scared of the world, yeah, regardless of you know, how often my parents were there or they weren't there. Yeah, so have you got any insight into why that was? Looking back now, I think it may have been something to do with me at birth, already being traumatised, but it, yeah, it's quite strange that I was already had this you know, view of the world as a very scary and unsafe place. At the age, from about the age of five up, though, I was bullied quite heavily. I remember first day of kindergarten being strangled and really scared of the other kids. You know, I'd, I'd always try to keep to myself. Um, I was very awkward at communicating with other kids throughout kindergarten. It's hard to remember specifics as I was quite young, but I, the feelings I definitely remember of being vulnerable, scared and weak, which, which um, progressed onto primary school as well. 
even though I had a couple of friends at primary school, again, I felt weak and small and insignificant. And I didn't feel good enough. And I was bullied again by kids, which really started compounding this feeling of I'm not good enough. The world's a scary place. I can't trust other kids and other people. And then again, I was bullied first day of year seven um, quite vigorously as well. Yeah. Right. Doesn't sound like an attractive childhood. So was there any, any of your friends, could they help you? Could they support you? Yes, they could have, although I didn't ask for support back then. I sort of just shrug it off. I had this mentality where, you know, um, I shouldn't worry about that and I should keep these feelings to myself. should probably mention as well, I was bullied because of my height and I had quite a pale complexion when I was younger. I was very, um, I was a lot smaller, as I've mentioned, and I had a quite a bad speech impediment. You know, I used to think, you know, kids will be kids. For me, it was quite, it was a quite a normal way to feel. I thought everybody felt alone and scared so I didn't I wasn't able to bring it up with my friends yeah it is particularly in um, adolescence it's really common for people to have feelings that they think are either extremely common and they're not or that they're extremely special you know and it's really very common that's this strange sort of uh, issue yeah so were you a good student so up until year seven I went to a high school and I was quite, so it's all through primary school and up to year seven, I was quite excelled at academics. I was quite smart. You know, I sat at the front, paid a lot of attention to the teacher. Yeah, I was quite a good student, but after being bullied so much in year seven, which by far was the worst year in terms of being bullied pretty much every day, physically and verbally. Yeah, it really just scared me. And I moved high school at the start of year eight. And that's when my grades started to fall as um, I started getting into alcohol and drugs. So what was the attraction with alcohol? So which one came first? Uh, Alcohol came on New Year's Eve, I remember quite vividly. I drank on New Year's Eve when I was 13 years old. And a similar feeling to what I got um, from drugs, which was a year later at the age of 14. Both times I felt, I had this feeling of like, I felt really powerful. I felt bigger. I didn't feel weak anymore. And I felt free. It was this very um, welcoming sense of freedom for me. And almost felt like my life was a video game where I could step out of myself. I didn't have the insight back then, but what was really happening was I was finally finding relief and I was being soothed um, through the substances and the alcohol. Um, and the same group of friends, which finally accepted me moving um, high schools at the start of year eight, they were also the ones who were drinking and using. So I had this sense of, um, I'm finally accepted and I feel relieved. So it was very attracting to me straight away. Yeah, most alcoholics I talk to have that feeling with alcohol that it makes them feel like they fit it in for the first time. Absolutely. So you, you started drinking at 13 at New Year's Eve. So did, how did that progress? So it started off maybe once every uh, month or so, once every couple of months. It was never my idea um, at first. Whenever my group of friends at high school would get together and you know say, "Oh, we're going to sneak out," and my, my mum doesn't know she's going out for the weekend, she want to come around and drink. So that would be once every couple months. And then by the age of fourteen, fifteen, it started to be every weekend. And I remember there was a house party every weekend. Most weekends were a really good excuse to catch up with my friends and 
find someone's house whose parents were away or find the house party on for that weekend and just drink as much as we could. So what did your family think? What did your mum and dad think? They had no idea at this stage. Mum and dad and the rest of my family really didn't have much of an idea about my use until the age of 16 or 17. So yeah, I was able to hide it, hide it for a while. Yeah, so how did you hide it? Because getting drunk is a pretty hard thing to hide. Yeah, so I wouldn't drink the next morning at this stage. I'd just drink, it, um, I'd just drink that night. So i say it was a Saturday or Friday night. I'd lie to my parents. So the lies started quite early as well. And I'd say I'm going to a friend's house and really I'd be going to a party. And I'd come home the next day, you know, very hungover. But um, I think I'd just keep to myself. And I was quite an outgoing and bubbly person, despite on the inside, I felt very anxious all the time. And you know, I, just, I just never felt good enough. But from what people saw on the outside, it was probably this hyperactive um, teenager that struggled to sit still. Uh, so did you have any girls in your social circle? Yeah, I did when I was younger. So I met my girlfriend when I was 15 years old, um, which for me growing up, getting in a relationship and finding a girlfriend was very important for me. And that also validated me. Which again, you know, before going to rehab recently, I I didn't have that insight at all. You know, I just thought, you know, everyone likes relationships, with, which I guess, you know, it's common to enjoy the validation from someone else. But for me, it was this sort of core belief, I'm not good enough and somebody else can validate me. Somebody else can make me feel good enough. And so to answer your question, yeah, there were a few girls from about the age of 15 onwards. And then I got in a quite a long-term relationship for about four or five years. And that whole time I started smoking more weed from the age of 14 or 15 that became daily at about the age of 16 17 um, so it progressed from monthly to weekly um, to every day and it's crazy now I remember something I want to share with you I remember walking to school in year eight with one of my friends and we were just speaking about you know some drugs that we'd heard of and we we're both smoking weed at the time and he spoke about cocaine and um, I just thought oh I'm never going to try that I'm like oh, how horrible would that stuff be and how horrible would it be to grow up and be a drug addict? You know, I've, I never once thought that would be me. I always felt quite, you know, this gentle nature about me, quite um, kind and scared. So I never thought in a million years I'd be a drug addict, but it's just crazy how much, you know, the disease progressed for me. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's amazing how it ta- life takes over. So was your girlfriend concerned about your drinking and your drug use? Yeah, this brings up quite a lot of sadness for me, to be honest. She, she did express a lot of concern a couple of years into the relationship. relationship. Uh, so we're together for about four or five years, from the age of 15 to 19, roughly that, um, 15 to 20. Yeah, I think a few years in, she sort of said, you know, I'm really concerned about your health. You seem to be using a lot. At this stage, the age of 16, 17, I was probably using ecstasy quite a lot on the weekends as well and I was smoking weed every day as I mentioned and yeah she definitely expressed her concern for me she said that how could she have a future with somebody who can't look after themselves properly and she was expressing her concerns that you know I probably wouldn't have you know a a lengthy life you know it wasn't sustainable to use as much as I was and I sort of just shrugged that off I'm quite defensive about it I understood where she was coming from but at the same the same time I mentality was you know I'm not ready to stop using drugs make me feel okay and I enjoy using and you know when the day comes I'll be able to stop 
Yeah. So did she use drugs herself? She, yes, she did. I was probably a major influence on that. Uh, she drank when I first met her and then I sort of influenced her, introduced her to marijuana. And then we both started taking ecstasy from the age of 17, going to underage nightclubs. And I remember sitting on St Kilda Beach the weekend after I took ecstasy for one of the first times and just thinking to myself, why doesn't everybody do this every weekend? You know, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world and I couldn't understand why the rest of the world, you know, would just go about their business without going to nightclubs every weekend because for me it was so great. But um, she, she ended up using less after the age of about 17, 18. I think towards the end of our relationship, me unable to stop smoking so much marijuana um, really had an impact on us breaking up. Yes, I think she wanted a life away from drugs and I was unable to stop. Yeah. As your drug use increased, were your parents or your siblings concerned? It's funny. If you asked me that question a couple of months ago, I I probably probably would have said, oh, maybe a little bit. But, but now with more insight, I see mum was very concerned. She knew at about the age of 17, 18 that I was smoking a lot of dope after finding you know, paraphernalia numerous times in my bedroom and you know, smoking utensils, that sort of stuff. And yeah, I think she became very concerned when I was 18 and I got into trouble for stealing at a supermarket that I worked at. And she knew I was quite drug affected and I was starting to lie to her and starting to lie to other people. Yeah, so she'd, she'd tell me occasionally, you know, if I cut you again, this is going to happen. She'd always be started to monitor me quite a lot more. It was really only mum, though, who expressed her concern. Yeah. So your siblings weren't aware of your use? I don't think my younger brother would have been fully but he, he never communicated that with me. I think he sort of watched all this from the sidelines side and um, yeah, I can get into that a bit later as well, how it impacted my brother. But um, my sister, she was quite the high achiever in the family and I think she sort of saw me mucking up and struggling a bit where she, you know, occasionally she'd try and reach out, but she was off worrying about sort of her life and she moved out of home quite young and she, she traveled a lot from about the age of 18 onwards. So she wasn't always around. Uh, my dad was concerned as well, but he wasn't able to express it as much. I think every couple of months or half a year, I'd have this sort of intervention with him, you know, like this, this crap has to stop. And yes, it would stop maybe for a couple of months or I'd, I'd get better at hiding it, but I'd always get lazy eventually. And I'd slip up again and they'd catch me out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, listen, we might take a short break there. Accent to women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent to women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women, a show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from 11am on Community Radio 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. 
If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Jesse uh, about recovery from drug use uh, with the help of Narcotics Anonymous. So Jesse, you sort of made it to about 17, using drugs almost on a daily basis. Are you working? Uh, at this stage, yes, I was working, although I'd go through jobs quite quickly. I think I just got fired from Safeway for stealing money. And then I found another job doing a plumbing apprenticeship quite quickly. So did you get more freedom once you started work? Yes and no, like as in freedom from my parents, I'm assuming you mean. Yeah, well, yeah, it's freedom to be on your own, yeah. I'd like to say yes, but I always sort of felt trapped. Like, yes, I, you know, I was able to save a bit more money and spend it on things I wanted to. I was approaching, you know, adolescence. And so I had freedom in that way, but I always felt this feeling of being trapped. And I really struggled to hold down a job because I was so anxious all the time. For me, work was a very anxious place to be um, because there was a lot of pressure. And I think I went through about four or five apprenticeships from the age of 18 to 20. What, what was the anxiety? Was it just performance? It was a fear that I think I would get yelled at or I'd get in trouble. A fear of confrontation, actually, now I think about it. Any form of confrontation with anybody absolutely terrified me, which I think came from um, quite a like getting bullied a lot in my childhood. Yeah. Did getting a licence improve that ability to sort of feel comfortable and get, get away by yourself? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I loved it when I got my license. It was one of the most liberating experiences of my life back then. You know, I just had this freedom. I could sort of drive and escape my own life. And little did I know I was escaping my own life back then. But yeah, I just really enjoyed driving around and doing what I want. I'd, I quite often would just drive around aimlessly. You know, I'd have no destination. I just enjoyed driving. So did you end up moving out of home? Uh, I moved out of home... I think for a couple of weeks when I was about 19. This uh, I should mention before this as well. So I broke up with my girlfriend at about the age of 18. And all of a sudden this feeling of worth I had from her went and I put my foot down on the gas pedal in terms of uh, my addiction. Started using ecstasy every weekend and ketamine and smoking even heavier, smoking marijuana heavier. And I got very depressed and anxious. I, I couldn't deal with my emotions. I, I didn't like what I was feeling. So I smoked weed to suppress those feelings. And just in the whole exhilaration of my addiction increasing, home just got a bit too stressful, always getting told what I can and can't do. I really didn't like that. So I moved out with a friend who smoked a lot of dope. That only lasted a few weeks. And you know, I started arguing with him. Um, I just don't think we were too healthy for each other, looking back now. And my mum would come around quite often to that house, banging on the door. No, I didn't move out. Well, she didn't like when I moved out. She was quite worried for my well-being. So it didn't last long. But then I moved back home for a couple of years. And I moved out again when I was about 23 for a year. And I moved back home the start of this year when I was 25. Right. So did things change when you got back home? Were your parents more active, actively involved in your life? It's honestly like 
I should probably mention as well, it's hard to remember a lot of these things because my use got quite heavy towards the end and you know, I was using amphetamines quite a lot, which um, does distort your memory and wipe a lot of it. But it's to the best of my ability to try and remember. Uh, yes, my parents did sort of, um, you know, knuckle down on me and really say that, you know, I've got to get my shit together. I had started to have a lot of, excuse my swearing. <laughs> um, I started to get a lot of external pressure, not just for myself, but from my parents as well. To, to be better, to perform better, because I'd probably gone through you know, seven or eight jobs by the time I was 20. My anxiety always getting the best of me and I'd, I'd lose that opportunity. Yeah, so I felt very pressured by the external world and myself. I constantly, from the age of being very young, growing up, I, you know, I always had these feelings of I'm not good enough. I'm not going to amount to anything. You know, I, I can't do this. That, ne that negative self-talk was always... It's always there. Yeah. So did you get any support from any of your jobs? Did they understand what you were going through or did they just see it as a drug issue? I'm assuming they just saw it as a drug issue. So ever looking back now, which really didn't help my self-esteem either. I thought, you know, because I came from a reasonably good family, I didn't really, I felt like I didn't have an excuse to keep using. And about the age of 18, I really knew I had a problem. I couldn't stop. I tried numerous times. And so I had to lie to myself and, you know, pretend I enjoyed using when I, I definitely didn't. So yeah, that, that was very confronting for me. And yeah, it's the fact I couldn't stop really lowered my self-esteem as well. Yeah. So would you want to talk a bit about that feeling when you you don't want to use, but you feel obligated to? What's what's it like? Best way to describe it is, is being possessed. For me, I think you know, every morning I'd wake up with this lingering feeling of just guilt and remorse that I had used the night before. And that would linger on me for the first few hours of every day, making me feel really depressed and anxious. And then by lunchtime, I'd thought of, sort of think, you know, maybe today I won't have to use. A bit of hope would sort of spark and I'd plan not to use. And then by the time work would finish every day, after telling myself hundreds of times that, you know, I can't use, it's not worth it, I'll be in pain again if I use. You know, I knew morally it wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, but no matter how hard I tried, that possession of the mind would come in by about three, four in the afternoon on the way home. And using seemed like the only solution. So it was very conflicting. And um, it, again, it just lowered my self-esteem. And because I thought, I thought it was a moral, I thought I had a moral problem. I thought something was wrong with me. I thought I was a bad person because my parents were telling me to stop. My friends were telling me to stop. My ex-girlfriend had told me to stop. I was telling me to stop and I still couldn't stop using drugs, which made me want to use more because I just felt pathetic. Yeah. Did you try any strategies about not having drugs around? Did you try to sort of avoid yeah, so I tried so many different strategies. I tried deleting numbers. I tried throwing out paraphernalia. I tried substituting substances. You know, I tried stop smoking weed. And I remember there was a phase where I was drinking a little bit more just on the weekends I'd drink and I stopped smoking weed during the week. And I felt all of a sudden I didn't feel so anxious anymore. And I could link, I could link these feelings of intense anxiety to my weed use. But then drinking led me into party drugs so I was always substituting I couldn't find a long-term solution I could only maybe stop for a few days throw out my drugs or I'd substitute um, to another substance and in those times that 
the times that I wasn't using, I didn't feel that great either. Like I might have felt okay for a couple of days because I wasn't so depressed or anxious, but I really struggled to socialize or live, you know, without drugs. And I was struggling to live with drugs. So it was sort of this, you know, I, I couldn't see what the solution was with or without drugs. I felt very unhappy. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, it's very difficult to, to cope if you get rid of the thing that's helping you cope, which a lot of people sort of don't realise that, you know, you're using drugs for a reason. It's, it's not using drugs because you just want to. It's, you know, you, you now have a dependence and your whole life is revolves around that, that thought and that thinking pattern. Yeah, you're so right. And I didn't see that back then. I, like I said, I thought I was just weak and I couldn't control my using. I, I, I didn't understand, which I now do, that I have a disease called addiction and you know, it's an illness and it can be treated. So were you looking for help? Did you ask anybody for help? I think a part of me really, really wanted to help, but I really wanted to, but I really struggled to reach out um, because I was such an anxious person. Yeah, like my beautiful mother, she, <laughs> she's been great this whole time and she'd always push me. Like any time I'd see a counsellor or a psychologist or a therapist, it was always because of her. She'd literally book, have to book the appointment, appointment for me, text me a hundred times where the appointment is and I'd go uh, feeling very anxious and confronted. But whenever I did see a counsellor or a therapist or a psychologist, I really did enjoy my time with them and it was nice to speak to somebody but I wouldn't see them more than a couple of times because I'd end up using again and I wouldn't go back out of feelings of you know, being embarrassed that they'd know I'm using. And I just wasn't a reliable person. I couldn't commit to seeing anyone more than a couple of times, really, especially when it came to therapist and, and getting help. I was too scared to get help, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty common, even if you're not drug affected. So when did you realise that you just couldn't continue to go on like this okay so from the age of 21 i started using speed a lot more i only used it a couple of times prior to that and for me this was a wonder drug you know that i didn't come down like i did on ecstasy a couple hours later it was quite it was, it was relatively relative i can't say that word <laughs> it was cheap that's <laughs> right it was cheap so you know i could afford i wouldn't have to pay much and i could stay up all weekend and I lasted longer, which I really liked as well. So that appealed to me. But um, little did I know that I was using a much more powerful substance. Um, it was pretty similar to ice. I started making you know, much, more, much stronger stuff a few years ago. And from the age of 21 to 24, I just couldn't stop using that. It was most weekends. Um, that's when my addiction really progressed and the come downs were very painful. So that was so painful. I'd be suicidal most weeks during work and I just feel so alone all, all these feelings that I felt when I was younger before I was even using drugs were coming back I was feeling alone very isolated not good enough uh, unworthy I just felt very unintelligent because my brain was starting to get really scrambled and and that's when I knew that I really need some help I started to get really desperate around the age of 24 the fact that I was partying with my friends a lot from the age of, you know, 18 to 24, you know, I did a bit of DJing when I was younger and was in the party scene in the city and, you know, hanging out 
with girls and that, that all was just a mask for how I was actually feeling on the inside. So like at, at first it was fun and then, you know, it was fun with consequences. And then by the time I was 24, just consequences. It, I wasn't using with any friends anymore. It was just me. It started to get a lot more lonely and a hell of a lot more painful. And that's when I really was crying out for help. And um, that's when I walked into my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting at the age of 24. So how'd you find out about NA? Uh, again, my mother helped me in the right direction. By this stage, the age of 24, she was just completely beside herself. She, she didn't know what to do. You know, she, she was watching her son slowly kill, her, kill himself, which would have been extremely painful for her. And so she told me about Narcotics Anonymous and to go to this meeting on a Friday, a Friday night. And I didn't want to go. I felt very resentful towards it. I, I was too scared to stop using and I didn't want help. A life without drugs just seemed absolutely terrifying. But I did want to stop using the speed and the ice because it made me very depressed. And I, I didn't like the person I was becoming and just how much I was losing my grip on reality. I remember walking into that first meeting and sitting down with a room full of about 30 people and just being absolutely terrified. And <laughs> I didn't know anyone. All these feelings in my insecurity started playing up again. They'd go around in a circle and people were just speaking, regardless if they were one day clean or a year clean or 10 years clean. And I felt like I could relate to these people and their pain. For the first time in my life, I felt understood. So I, I did really enjoy it. But the voice in my head that didn't want to completely stop using was too loud. I thought maybe if I can just stop using speed and ice, that'll be okay. So I, I did for a couple of weeks and I was just using other drugs like weed and cocaine and ketamine, which for me seemed more appealing because I wouldn't come down as much. They were just a little bit more expensive. So that was my thinking at the time. And I remember I'd go to meetings and just I'd smoke weed right after the meeting thinking that was okay because I didn't understand it's a program of pure abstinence and I, I wasn't ready to let go. I, I wanted to do recovery, but on my own terms. Yeah, that's not unusual to want to do it on your own terms. <laughs> I've heard it a lot coming into recovery this time. Okay, well, listen, we might take another short break there. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Jesse about recovering from problematic drug use with the help of Narcotics Anonymous. So, Jesse, you, you talked about coming to NA but not really wanting to stop using. So, 
what happened after you decided to, you know, just try and cut down? Yeah, right. So after I tried to just stop cutting down, it was just one horrible relapse after the other, whether it was, you know, once a week or once a month or once every couple of days, I was unable to limit my use. And I didn't realize that substituting one drug for another wasn't the answer either. For me, as I mentioned earlier, I've really wanted to stop using ice and speed, which were having a very big impact on you know my work life, my friends and family, caused a lot of isolation and just pain and despair. So I thought if I could stop using those drugs and I just used you know, marijuana and ketamine occasionally, it would all be okay. And also my mum was pushing me to do NA, so I wasn't doing it for myself. So in between then and now, which has been about a year, everything just got worse. The relapse became so much more painful. Every time I used, I was using for longer. I was starting to miss out on work. Before that, I was quite committed to work. Now I was using, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I was really starting to lose my grip on reality. Um, I was thinking what it was like to belong to a family. I was forgetting what it was like to be a child. I was forgetting what it was like to laugh. And I don't think I had much of a sense of humor at all the last year. So yeah, to answer your question, Bill, it just, it progressed um, to a very dark, sad place for me. So using more and longer and affecting your mental well-being, how did you pull out of that dive? How did I stop using? What was the trigger that, or made you realise that you just had to stop entirely? Well, I feel very grateful. I've got a mother who never gave up on me (laughs) and she was always there, you know, always there pretty much begging me to stop using and when it got to the point where I was using more and more, it wasn't just affecting me. It was affecting other people. It was completely transparent how broken I was. Um, you know, I wasn't coming to family dinners anymore on the weekend. I wasn't even sitting at the dinner table during the week anymore. I was completely abstinent. I quite often, I was homeless on a few occasions as well from the age of 23 to 25. I just run away from home for a couple of weeks and come back again, sleeping in my car. But the turning point for me was my mum sent me a text message after a horrible relapse at the start of this year. And yeah, the text message read, she said, um, finally, can finally see my son is starting to give up on himself and the drugs will be a part of his life forever and that she'd been crying all week at work. And the power of that text message was unbelievable for me. For the first time in my life, I, I sat down and I felt guilty and I felt I could feel that guilt on such a deep visceral level and that pain because I knew my mum was right. I knew I had finally given up on myself and I was completely broken. So um, from there, I, I promised her and myself, you know, if, if this ever happens again, if I relapse on ice again, then I'll go to rehab. And sure enough, a couple of months later, uh, I relapsed again and it was horrible. This was in July this year. And I used every day for about three weeks. And it was just a really dark, lonely place to be. At this stage, I hadn't seen any of my close group of friends for a couple of months. I was just really lonely. It was just me and the drugs. And I remember I had the number for the rehab. So I gave him a call because I didn't know what else to do. And I was in that much pain. 
and a month and a half later, I was admitted into rehab. So that's a long time, isn't it? So what did you do in the one and a half months? Um, I managed not to use speed or ice. I would have liked to get into rehab quicker, but with um, the pandemic on this year, that wasn't really an option. I actually had to see a private rehab because the public waiting list was months and months and months. So a month and a half was actually quite quick. But in that period of time, I smoked a lot of weed because I couldn't deal with what I was feeling. All these feelings were exploding inside me. I was so scared to go to rehab. I felt really weak and pathetic I was going to rehab. I couldn't believe that my life had, you know, sort of flown before my eyes in a sense. And all of a sudden, here I am at 25, a drug addict with a broken family around me going into rehab not with no friends really. That, that's the way I felt. It's probably a very cynical world, but, you know, probably a bit realistic as well at the time. Yeah, so I just couldn't believe I was going to rehab and that really scared me. So I just smoked a lot of weed, as I said, and just sort of held on as tight as I could and was just counting down the days, just absolutely terrified. Yeah. So what was going into rehab like then if you'd had to wait that long and you were scared of it? Yeah, it was a lot of anticipation. I remember the first morning I was on the way there in the car with mum. I wasn't present at all. I don't remember how we got there. I was just in my head, had a thousand and one thoughts going on. I almost felt like I didn't need to go. I felt quite healthy again. I was completely kidding myself, but I thought, you know, maybe this time, you know, it'd been a month and a half since I used heavy drugs. Maybe this time will be different. Got to rehab and yeah, it was quite terrifying at first. There were about 30 other people there. Uh, sort of looked like a hospital as well. And I remember just walking in. Yeah, just really terrified and scared and just really broken. And again, it just sort of that realisation, like I couldn't believe that this was my life. It felt like a, a movie or it felt like a dream. Uh, but then sure enough, that first night, I remember sitting down. We, we watched NA or AA meeting via Zoom every night. It was a Monday night. I remember sitting down on this seat and a guest speaker came up on, on Zoom and they started speaking about their life. And I don't know what it was, but something happened in that moment. I was instantly drawn to the speaker. I sort of leaned forward off my chair and I was completely engaged. And this overwhelming sense of relief just sort of flushed through my body. I realized that for the first time in a long time that you know, maybe, maybe there is another way. Maybe um, I don't need to be in pain anymore. And, and maybe like, this is it. Maybe this is, this is a chance I, I've been always uh, searching for. This is, this is what I've been looking for. And it's strange because I didn't, I didn't say that when I was using drugs. I didn't say that all I wanted is to feel love, connected. All I wanted was to not use drugs all the time. But the voice that was so loud in my head and possessed me was, I need to use, otherwise I won't feel okay. So it was, it was a big shift. Yeah. yeah, it is a big shift. So was it part of it understanding the illness nature of, the, yeah, of alcoholism and drug addiction? Uh, yes, that's probably played out as one of the biggest parts of my recovery this time around. Just um, rehab I went to was really good for educating us on what addiction actually is. That you know, it's not a moral dilemma; it's a 
illness. And you know, it's not my responsibility that I have it, but it's my responsibility to get recovery. And for me, that was like the burden of feeling like this has all been my fault. You idiot, why can't you stop using drugs? That had finally lifted off my shoulders a little bit. And I was able to look at my life situation objectively. I was able to look at it as I'm a very sick person who needs help. And I was able to embrace that help without my own ego and all my defenses coming up. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's good to understand. I, I like that thing that you said about it's my responsibility to recover. I'm not responsible for why I am like I am, but I, it is my responsibility to recover from it. Because that, that's the thing, it's taking that responsibility and you know using it to your benefit. So what was the first thing that you started to do, apart from abstaining, what was the first thing that you started looking at in your recovery? Uh, first things I started looking at was you know, just establishing routine, being a bit kinder to myself, really start looking at my past. That was a big one. Like before speaking to you today, I had could barely remember my past. Like I said, I've, I just thought I was this worthless idiot that couldn't stop using drugs. So to actually see that I was just a human in, in a lot of pain and I had, it wasn't like I had these major traumatic things happen in my life. Well, this is what I thought. It's it's not a matter of how traumatic or not those experiences might seem to other people. It's how they, how I experience the world. And I started to realize that I was always scared and terrified and got bullied a lot. And I just couldn't deal with what I was feeling on the inside, which made me externally seek uh, a substance on the outside. So it just that understanding and developing a routine and regularly doing therapy every day and speaking about my emotions. Yeah, speaking about my emotions would probably have to be one of the biggest things as a male, I didn't really like talking about the way I felt all the times. And if I did, like, I'd feel like I was a burden to my friends because I wouldn't shut up about it. Um, so to have that place where I could speak to other addicts and alcoholics every day and, you know, they'd break down and cry and then I'd cry and just the humanity in them and to see that, you know, I wasn't alone for the first time. And finally I felt connection, the same thing I've been searching through um through, through drugs so yeah that was huge yeah people who don't have a drug or an anxiety problem find it very difficult to understand why you do which seems funny but it's really hard to explain to somebody why you're feeling the way you are because they've never felt like that and it's just so unusual to them that why don't you just get over it and it's like well you know it's a it's a it's a medical condition. It's it's not. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Bill. And yeah, it just reinforces like I thought no one cared about when I spoke about how I felt because they couldn't relate to it. But the, now I was in rehab, speaking to all these other addicts, and that's why the NA meetings are so great because you're in a room or you know, a room full of all these other people who understand you like no one else will, and just to have that understanding. You can feel something in the air, like it's this energy, it's this energy of understanding and, you know, I understand your pain, you understand mine. And for me, that, that was just a way to, for me to start healing and to look at myself without judging myself. Yeah. So what about meetings? It's a bit difficult in COVID doing face-to-face meetings. So have you ever been to a face-to-face meeting? Uh, yes. Yeah, so a year ago, I went to my first face-to-face meeting, Yeah, which I really enjoyed. It's been very weird 
being in recovery this year with um, meetings via Zoom. But yeah, um, I can't wait to get back to face-to-face meetings. Although there is a benefit through the Zoom meetings too at the moment because it's so easy. You just sit down, sit down at home. It's a click of your button. You don't have to drive anywhere. And you know, I can do a meeting on the other side of the world from my um, home in Northeast Melbourne. So it's quite incredible. It's a really good way for me to see what other meetings are out there and connect with as many people as possible. So I've been doing a meeting every night for the last 92 days. So yeah, that's, that's just been paramount to my recovery. It's just, there's something that happens when I do a meeting, even if I don't always feel like it. Um, I just feel like rejuvenated. I feel, I get outside of my head. I get outside of my thinking. Because for me, it's what I learned in rehab too. It's not just that I've got a drug problem. Um, I'm learning I've got a thinking problem. So if I allow my mind just to be in its natural state, eventually I'll start thinking some pretty whacked out thoughts. And, you know, some of those thoughts will be to use drugs or they'll be to go and pick up when I'm using drugs at two in the morning or whatever, this is back in active addiction. Like I had no consideration for anyone else. So now I've got the ability to, to actually think about my, the consequences before I make, before I make a decision, which is just huge for me. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in recovery has got a thinking problem because the, um, the substances are not there anymore. So <laughs> it only leaves the thinking problem. And yeah, there's, you know, family, family, uh, groups like Al-Anon and things like that. The people don't drink, but they've got the same. They've got the they've got the ism. They've got the thinking problem, and and really that's the thing you've got to recover from is your your own thinking patterns are self defeating. So, what's it like being in NA, and what has it allowed you to do now that you couldn't do before? Being in NA, I feel like I finally belong which you know, I never had that feeling before of being accepted. That's another big one. It's just, and it's great to have a program I can turn to when I feel my thinking is getting a bit, you know, when I'm feeling, when I'm feeling a bit sick and by a bit sick, I mean, if I have using feelings or I'm feeling really anxious or confused or flustered, I can, I can do a meeting. I have a sponsor I can call. I've got heaps of friends in recovery I can call, which I've met through the program of NA. Uh, I've got all these tools now, which, um, you know, I don't need to think my way out of this addiction anymore because so for me that never worked. It's a, it's a disease of the mind. So to think my way out of it was virtually impossible. So I have, I have a program that helps me with my thinking now, which is great. Uh, what was your second question there, Bill? So what, what's it allowed you to do now that you couldn't do before? Uh, that's right. Now for me, I'm, I'm still quite early in recovery. It's been 92 days and the transformation has just been absolutely humongous from going, feeling so trapped and isolated the last several years to now just waking up every day. I have joy and I have this feeling of like love for myself and the world around me, which I never had those, those feelings before. Not every day is perfect, but every day is so much better than what it was when I was in active addiction, I'm able just to feel emotions. I'm able to go on walks with my mum, rebuilding trust with my family again. I'm able to be present. Like I was able to be present for my father's birthday the other weekend. I'm able to be there for people. I'm able to care for myself and love myself, which allows me to love and care for other people. I'm able to do things like take accountability and responsibility for my life for once. I'm able to 
Uh, I go for runs quite a lot now. I go for mountain bike rides. Like I never thought I'd ever do any of those things. It's just been a complete 180. Just everything I'm doing in my life now, I just, sometimes it doesn't feel real because I've been trying so hard and I'd given up um, so many times on finding recovery that I never thought I would. But I get, it just allows me to, to be a better person and it allows me to act with humility, which is another big one. Like I no longer think I'm the best or the worst person in the room. Like I'm, I'm just a part of, it gives me a relationship with something bigger than myself. It enables me to, to look at myself honestly and be honest with myself and, and yeah, and just be my, and be okay with myself. That's probably the biggest one. Like I can actually be okay with who I am, regardless of the mistakes I make or have made or will make. Like I'm able to accept that now, whereas before I would have labeled and judged quite quickly. Yeah, it's, um, it's about getting back to life. Yeah, back to living. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If anybody would like to find out a bit more about Narcotics Anonymous, uh, you can phone them on 1300 652 820 or you can go online at na.org.au for more information and details of local NA meetings. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Jesse, for sharing your drug recovery experience with us and talking about how NA has helped you. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Bill. Really grateful to be here. That's about all we've got time for today. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about living with the family disease of alcoholism and we'll be joined by some members of Al-Anon family groups. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR.